Welcome to the Ohio Humanities Podcast, where we engage real issues in real conversations with scholars and experts from across the state. In this series, Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters, we explore the topic of civic and electoral participation, using history and jurisprudence to illuminate contemporary issues. This is Ron Bryant. I am your host of Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters. We're engaging real issues and real conversations, and we're coming to the end of this podcast series, but it's been a wonderful podcast series. We are perfecting democracy, and today we're perfecting democracy with Professor Kevin Matson with Ohio University, and he's a 20th century intellectual. I like that. That's, <laughs> that's what we're talking about, intellectual culture and politics. His research focuses on the intersection of ideas and politics in the 20th century. He's on the editorial board of Dissent Magazine. And Dissent Magazine is a left-wing intellectual magazine founded in 1954, published by the University of Pennsylvania. And that's that University of Pennsylvania Press on behalf of the Foundation for the Study of Independent Social Ideas. He's a writer. He has a publication. I really like this one. That's why I kind of like jumped on it. We're not here to entertain punk rock Ronald Reagan and the real culture war of the 1980s America. That's a mouthful for sure. Kevin, welcome to Perfecting Democracy. Well, thanks so much for having me here. It's a joy. We're going to get right to it, as we like to say. We're going to be talking about ideas and political divisions. And this is on point relevant to what we're dealing with today in the past week. Socialism and communism, and I might add democratic socialism, is, is thrown around a lot today. We're often thrown around in American politics as well. So few people seem to have any real idea of what the two or three terms mean. So can you explain what these political philosophies actually are and how have they been used in American politics historically? Well, you know, it's a great question because I think there are a lot of young people out there right now who um, seem to embrace socialism, which they would associate with Bernie Sanders' campaign uh, for for uh, trying to win over the Democratic Party. But I don't think that a lot of them fully understand what socialism means and certainly not what communism means. And they sometimes slip up by kind of merging the two ideas together. So I think what they both um, have in common, and I'm going to, when I talk about socialism, I mean democratic socialism. And and so just so that's clear, I, I'm not talking about revolutionary socialism. That's, I think, more in the communism box. But I think that what they share is that they both want to change society from being production for private profit to production for public use. The term that I always liked that came out by the late 19th century was the cooperative commonwealth. But the difference between the two doctrines, I think, is mostly about how do we get to that place? How do we create that sort of utopian ideal Socialists are tend to be willing to work through electoral politics. They tend to be, uh, you know, willing to work for reform rather than overthrow or any sort of violence. Communists tend to believe that there needs to be a revolution, seemingly the destruction of the existing government and its replacement with what Karl Marx once called the dictatorship of the proletariat. And this would be the the idea that the Bolsheviks in Russia put into practice. Instead of just talking about maybe democratic socialism which I think is is that doctrine that believes in electoral politics as the gateway to changing things. Um, I'd also point out the term liberalism is often misunderstood. And I take liberalism in this context to mean a belief in a mixed economy, that the state can do certain 
certain things, but you don't want to completely get rid of all markets. You want to keep some production within markets and others for public use. But um, again, this is one of those things where you really see people using a lot of terminology. And I often will say, oh, so what is a socialist? And I'll get that look of like, oh, I don't know. But I think that they can be parsed out. And, and that's how I would do it. That's uh, pretty straightforward. In American politics, we often create political caricatures of our opponents, sometimes just to laugh at them directly. In Intellectuals, your publication, Intellectuals in Action, the Origins of the New Left and Radical Liberalism, 1945 through 1970, you argue that if the New Left had not existed, neoconservatives would not have invented it. So what was the New Left and how was it portrayed by its political opponents? And also, what do we lose when we disregard the ideas of our political rivals? I think most historians would agree that the new left had its uh, origins and roots in the modern civil rights movement um, that starts to be able to be seen in, in the in the mid 1950s with the Montgomery bus boycott. This is in contrast. The new left is always in contrast with the old left. The old left would fit the the feeling of the 1930s, the idea that we have to do something to get the country out of the depression. We have to organize unions. We have to maybe join the Communist Party or what have you. But that's the old left. The new left. Is, is definitely situated within the late 50s into the 1960s. Probably, and, and you know, it, there's a great deal of diversity amongst people and there's no card carrying members of the new left, right? I mean, you can't say anything along those lines, but you can, again, like the, the previous question, you can start to kind of, I think, define things. I would argue that the new left really gets its jumpstart origins in 1962 in the writing up of the Port Huron Statement. Um, and this was done by a new organization that kind of grew out of older socialist movements um, that was known as the Students for a Democratic Society. There is also, out, coming out of the Civil Rights Movement, there's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or what we would usually call SNCC. Yeah. Um, and they've, they're already forming in 1960. They're using direct action, right? They're doing the sit-ins at segregated lunch counters um, and refusing to move and basically breaking the local law um, at that point in time. What both SNCC and SDS have in common is a belief in participatory democracy, a belief that ordinary citizens have to get engaged in public issues and have to do something along the lines of, as the case is with, with uh, the new left, uh, with SDS, moving into community organizing, working at the local level to try to get citizens to address issues that then you can try to keep them engaged and informed about what's going on. With SNCC, obviously, the idea being um, you use direct action in order to make your point that you want to be treated as an equal. And so those would be the two groups that I'd say fit the moniker of the new left and makes it different from the old left because they're not really talking as much about economic issues. They're more so interested, I mean, they are to a certain extent, but they're more so interested in racial issues and in kind of the psychological issues that a lot of students who are growing up and going to big, large universities are feeling that they're in the in, in an impersonal structure and they want to find some sort of meaning in their life. And that can only be done, SDS would argue, in participatory democracy. What happens if you take SNCC in 60, you take SDS in 62, is this is all pre-Vietnam War. We're engaged, I mean... 
the United States is involved in Vietnam, but it hasn't quite heated it up the way that LBJ will. And so in 1965, you see, you can feel kind of the Vietnam War um, sort of growing and growing. And, and suddenly the attention of the, these actors trying to get more participatory democracy, trying to organize around issues that are not socioeconomic in nature, start to turn to what are called teach-ins. And this is something that I pay a fair amount of attention to in, in the book. Teach-ins are where people, again, deliberate with one another and try to learn about what got America involved in this conflict and this crisis in Vietnam. The problem is that many of the people who are frustrated with, with, the, with Vietnam will suddenly say, we've got to go out and protest. We've got to go out and resist. And finally, it gets radicalized, including amongst people in SDS, to the idea of bring the war home, open up a new front to fight the war, which leads to the formation of an organization known as the Weather Underground, or sometimes called the Weathermen, that are actually bombing buildings and, and trying to you know, br- open up a new front. I'm following you 100% because that seemed to be the beginning of the radicalization of the new left. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I think the neoconservatives kind of fixate on, right? They, they try to kind of, I think, ignore the, the prior history of SDS and SNCC, the civil rights movement, participatory democracy. And they say, aha, you know, this is what it really is all about. It's about people wanting to blow up the Capitol, which the Weather Underground actually tr- did try to do um, and actually succeeded in setting a bomb off there. But you know, I think by fixating on that sort of, you know, radicalized violence, uh, we kind of miss some of the other possibilities that the S- that SDS and SNCC might have pursued if it hadn't gotten kind of dragged off the rails and headed right into protest against Vietnam. And that's, again, like where I where I would say that the that many of the neocons start to say, well, it's it's all those violent actions that are, you know, 69 to 1970, including those by the Weather Underground, that really constitutes the real new left. And I would say, no, the new left had more possibilities abilities to it. I follow you. What can we learn from the successes and failures of the new left? And I, I want to add to that in terms of understanding the successes and failures. Also talk about the differences between the new left or the left, as we call it today, and the radical left. Yeah, I think that the difference here is that, I mean, what can we attribute to the new left? Um, I would say, in part, the eventual victory of the civil rights movement in 1964 and 1965. You know, was I, one of the things to remember is that the March on Washington, you have some famous speeches that are given there. Um, and uh, one of them is the, of the gentleman who just recently passed away. John Lewis. Yeah. We're 100% following. <laughs> and, you know, his famous speech in which he called for the Kennedy administration to do something about civil rights. And Kennedy soon assassinated after that. And basically, Lyndon Baines Johnson takes it up and gets the Civil Rights Act into practice, but also the Voting Rights Act, which itself is today, as you know, heavily contested and heavily, and actually has been ruled against in many cases by the by the sitting Supreme Court. But I think that, you know, I would say, what does the new left accomplish? I would say articulating a sensibility of racial justice. I would say it wants to see ordinary citizens engage in political deliberation and change perhaps the policies that those at the top of the political system seem to be so incredibly wedded to. And that is obviously the Vietnam War. It's the frustration with, that, with not being able to stop the Vietnam War that I think drives a lot of the people into that radicalization phase. Gotcha. You have a number of publications in your first book, Creating a Democratic Public. You argue that the United States needs 
a democratic public. Now, I'm not understanding that 100%, but I believe I have a good idea. So to deliberate and make judgments about the local and national issues, that democratic public affects our lives. What are democratic publics and how can our current political climate benefit from building them? Well, I'm going to turn it back on you because you've already started to define it. I like those two terms that you you allude to, deliberate and make judgments. I think that's a core element of what a democratic public allows for. I think a democratic public is, a, a, sometimes people will call it a public sphere. It's a sphere of citizens that are not necessarily occupying the existing government, nor are they in business. They're looking for a kind of third sector, a place to meet as equals to one another. And I'll give a concrete example of that, but basically committed to deliberation, committed to listening to people's viewpoint and some sort of conflict that that I think naturally arises out of that. And again, all participants in this democratic public are perceived to be equals. So one of the things that I study in that book, which was actually my, my dissertation changed into a book, is that there's this movement during the progressive era, the years that come before World War One, And the movement was to set up public schools, I should say, go to public schools and open them up in the evening so adults can come in to talk about the issues of the day. And one of the things that I found to be most remarkable was that there were meetings where observers were saying, I'm seeing janitors talking to bankers. I'm seeing people who don't have a great deal, a lot in common talking with one another. And that's a good thing to open up that sort of communication. Again, it's not necessarily a a unified thing. Um, It's it's about debate. It's about contention. But it's saying that we need to open up a, a, a sphere of society, a place for discussion so that we can kind of take on some of the very serious issues that would be faced in the early progressive era, or I would say up to today. That's so very interesting. We're talking about engaging, engaging others in dialogue for the most part. In dialogue, right. Not in um, revolution or revolt or violence. Seeing where I am and I'm seeing where you are and where we might be able to go. (laughs) I like that. July of 79, that's 1979 for our young folks. Jimmy Carter gave his crisis of confidence speech a speech that many historians believe doomed his re-election chances because of his critique of American culture. I'd like to listen to some of that, see what he was saying. And there's a growing disrespect for government and for churches and for schools, the news media and other institutions. This is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth. And it is a warning. These changes did not happen overnight. They come upon us gradually over the last generation. Years that were filled with shocks and tragedy. We were sure that ours was a nation of the ballot, not the bullet, until the murders of John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, Jr. We were taught that our armies were always invincible and our causes were always just, only to suffer the agony of Vietnam. We respected the presidency as a place of honor. So what do we get wrong about Carter's speech and how have the voters historically treated candidates who express broad critiques of the nation's social and political culture? 
Well, first off, you, you, gave it, you gave the right title to the speech. The title is the crisis of confidence speech. You did not call it the malaise speech, which is usually what is, is associated with it, the, the use of the term malaise. And when I was teaching undergraduates this particular speech, I asked them to go through the text, come through the text and find the word malaise. And they couldn't. They couldn't find that term. It just basically becomes the sort of, you know, what essentially happens is that Ronald Reagan, who's trying to get rid of Jimmy Carter, obviously, and occupy the White House himself, starts to paint the speech as if Jimmy Carter is blaming the American people. This is an energy crisis in which we've run out of gasoline for cars. People don't have the fuel they need for the upcoming winter. That's the sort of uh, energy crisis that Carter's trying to address and do something about. One of the things that's interesting is that he thinks that our consumer culture, our buying of things, our belief that material wealth is the highest value, those things get in the way of us being able to tackle the energy crisis as he sees it. He thinks that, you know, there should be a lot of sacrifice to a certain extent, almost put the nation on the war footing. You can think about today, I think a lot of people would say the pandemonium that's going on here is due in large part because there's not enough of a, a belief in unity and, and treating, the, treating the virus as a war. Um, that's a, you know, obviously Carter didn't come up with that. But uh, and that critique of consumer culture, the critique of the idea that we make ourselves happy by buying lots of things, which creates waste. Jimmy Carter thinks that we need to do something about that. We need to rethink our values. We need to rethink who we are as citizens, and we need to rethink our sacrifice and, and belongingness to one another. I would say that going back to that speech and the reason that I wrote that book in large part was I thought, you know, this, this really resonates, I think, for people who are living through global climate change right now. The need to do something about restricting, putting limits on our consumption of oil and gas. And I think that's one of the things that Carter basically tr tried to articulate and then was pretty much creamed. Well, first off, let me say, most people think, oh, well, he gave this, this speech and he was saying all these dour things about consumer culture and he was blaming the American people as Reagan will eventually call it. It was the one time that his ratings went up significantly, about 10 to 12% approval ratings of Jimmy Carter, which for Carter, that was a big deal because he was, he was not doing terribly well in the court of public opinion. So I think that the speech actually did resonate with people, but there were people kind of like the neoconservatives and the, and the radicalized new left who are basically saying, we can use this against Jimmy Carter because we can make it seem as if Jimmy Carter is blaming the American people. I think that though, you know, thinking about it now, I look at that speech and I think, wow, wouldn't it be nice to have a president who would give that sort of speech and be trying to tackle global climate change? That would be really nice to hear again, to have some sort of, you know, kind of bold leadership that actually is concerned with the public good. You're tuned into Ohio Humanities. We're tackling real issues with real conversations. We continue to perfect democracy with Kevin Matson, who's our wonderful intellectual interview for today. He's made several appearances on major programs, including NPR, Fox News, C-SPAN, and the Colbert Report. Colbert. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> he also teaches U.S. cultural and intellectual history, including courses in 20th century ideas, cultural rebellion, popular culture, and film. And I might add dissent to that, too, if you want to talk about that, because that's pretty much in the front page today, whether they're saying it or not. Earlier, I alluded to a book that you produced, We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of the 1980s. And you discussed how the punk rockers connected politics and music in ways that defined the times and unleashed a culture war from below. And I just want to take a look at a parallel with that with Jimmy Carter and how 
how he used music as a tool to fundraise his campaign, as well as to connect with the cultural societal norm at that particular time, which was actually never done. I think that was something, you know, brand new. So why was punk rock so powerful as a vehicle for channeling those energies of so many young people growing up in the 80s? And what can we learn from their culture war to better understand our cultural, political divisions today? And of course, how to navigate those dissenting ideas. There it is again. So I think that the major principle that lies behind um, the the punk movement uh, of 1980s America, um, especially one that comes out predominantly of, of a increasingly suburbanized nation, is the principle of DIY, do it yourself. I think that the real birth of punk in the 1980s was young people rejecting the music that the culture industry and the big record companies were trying to pump at them. Um, they rejected that and they said, we can make our own culture. And so kids started going into their own basements and started forming bands. They started to communicate with one another through the music that they would tape and distribute. They usually would be using cassette tapes, this ancient thing that very few people really remember what they were. You know, they're creating what would be called fanzines or zines where they're communicating with one another, um, both locally, but also increasingly nationally. And I think that the DIY principle is perhaps one of the most important sort of practices, I guess is, would be the best way to, to call it, the best practices of how you do try to create your own culture while you're rejecting what corporate record labels are pumping at you. So two of the chief people that Ronald Reagan will use um, in his, when, as he's in the White House, to try to kind of saddle up next to any celebrity that he can get next to, one of those is Michael Jackson, who he invites to the White House and comes out and says, oh, what a thriller this is. And it's actually John Roberts, who's sitting at the Supreme Court now, who's White House counsel, has to write to Reagan and say, you can't do this. You can't shill for this guy, right? There is a public interest. You are the leader of the public. You're not the leader of the entertainment industry. And of course, Ronald Reagan, that was his background. And I think that greatly upset a number of of young kids who who were rushing into the punk scene. The other person that he tries to um, incorporate while he moves into his uh, campaign for re-election is Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA. Which if you hear just the title of the song, of course, it sounds like it's basically perhaps an anti-immigrant song or a kind of nativist song because the emphasis there is born in the USA, which kind of has certain connotations to it. But of course, um, it's actually a song about a working class guy who dies in the Vietnam War. And so Reagan was trying to appropriate this thing and try to make it work for him. And pretty quickly, Bruce Springsteen says, no, you're not going to do that. I don't, I, I'm not going to allow for that to occur. You're kind of pushing the music in, in a direction that it, it really isn't in intended to go. So I would say that it's in that it's in rebelling against a president who is more an entertainer in chief rather than, you know, be, being this true governor of the of the nation. You see young kids basically say to themselves, we can make our own culture. We can we can reject what the corporations are pumping out at us and we can make our own and that's going to be a better culture than what, you know, the big corporations want us to, you know, buy in in the record bins. That's probably the best way to maybe Got you. That makes sense. I'm just wondering if they would have done better using some of the music from Ohio, like Pretenders out of Akron, since we're talking about Ohio. 
people outside of Ohio often describe us as a flyover state, divorced from the coasts and then divorced from the social and political scenes as well. But and we're not here to entertain. You highlight how the punk movement, which was highly political in many places and associated with the coasts, was very active in Ohio. So that's why I mentioned the pretenders and throughout the Midwest, of course. So does the term flyover country misrepresent us here in Ohio? And can the country benefit from recovering narratives from places like Ohio? Ohio. O-H. I-O. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes as people who will say, oh, you. Oh, you. Um, no, thanks for pointing out the, you know, the pretenders and Chrissy Hind and stuff like that. One of the things that I think we've forgotten about in, in our music history, including in our more local Ohio history, was that Cleveland during the mid-1970s, which is not what I touch upon in the book. My book's focused on the 1980s and it's a different chapter, I think, in punk rock than, than what had uh, kind of emerged in Cleveland in the mid 1970s. But there's also a band that I think is actually in, in many ways of higher quality, if I can say that, and it's Perubu. Um, and they come out of the Cleveland scene and they are very rooted in Cleveland. They're very, very rooted in the kind of, you know, industrial decay that the city's become known for by the mid 1970s. And they try to kind of incorporate that into their own music. So I think that, yes, Ohio is a flyover state for many people. And yes, it means that a lot is missed, um, that a lot of stuff is going on in Ohio. Ohio, that people are just completely and absolutely ignoring. I would say that that includes a small re- record company, really a cassette tape distribution company that is based in the Dayton area in the 1980s that basically puts out compilation tapes of kids playing their own music. And he, what this person's trying to do is, is distribute that music to as many people as possible, which I think also negates this idea that, you know, Ohio is a bunch of boring farmers that don't do anything other than, you know, whatever, whatever boring farmers do. So, I mean, I, and I think that the other thing that I really kind of grew um, tired of and why I wanted to write about 1980s punk was it seemed to be that, that the histories that we have today are completely and absolutely fixated on either New York City or Los Angeles. And they treat that, that's kind of the setup, right, for the, for the uh, flyover state idea. And I wanted to look at places where people were creating music scenes and, and places where zines could be circulated that were far outside of New York City or Los Angeles. And there were a lot of them. I was, I was amazed at how many scenes, as they were called back then, how many scenes were actually, you know, being created in places like Oklahoma, you know, which you just wouldn't expect, right? Not at all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really incredible. And there's just, it's this wonderful thing that you can do when you actually search out historical archives. And believe me, there's actually increased numbers, believe it or not, of archives that are holding a lot of information about the punk movement of the 1980s. And it's just, it was just amazing to, to go through this stuff and say, I never knew that there was a music scene in Florida. I didn't know that even Alabama had a punk scene, small as it was. I didn't know that Ohio had a lot of different scenes going on, not just, not just in the Dayton area, but you know, at Kent State, the college itself and the surrounding area, that that got a, had a lot of activity going on in it. And I think that that was one of the things that was kind of fun. To, there's this kind of thing that I know historians sound like we're fuddy-duds, but the fact is there was something really fun and sometimes surprising by going through archives and finding all these clippings of things and past zines and cassette tapes that, that were being circulated in the 1980s in places that we never expected things like that to be circulated. Well, we're just going to have to say, let that whip. Ha, 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 ha. 
in discussing President Richard Nixon, you have discussed how he helped create an American form of political culture focused on personalities and a candidate's likability. And we know how that goes. <laughs> does this form of political culture continue to inform our elections today? And I believe it does. And have personalities displaced ideas in American politics? I could just basically say yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, but um, no, I think it, Nixon, uh, the, the, the research that I've done on Nixon and the book that I did about Nixon predominantly focused on what was called his checkers speech. He had been shown, he was running for vice president under Dwight Eisenhower as the presidential candidate for the Republican Party. And um, it was discovered that Nixon had a slush fund of about $18,000, which was predominantly um, uh, supplied by bankers and guys in the oil industry. And what it was intended to do was to cover some of the costs for his run for office. It created this kind of feeling that like there's this secret funding and that there's something wrong with like secret funding and people trying to keep funding from, you know, being understood as a force in American politics. And so what um, Nixon did after a long battle with Dwight Eisenhower, who at certain points seemed to want to dump him from the ticket, he thought it was bad enough what he was hearing, uh, especially he said, you know, we have to be really clean because we're going to call the Democrats a bunch of corrupt people and we can't have that, that accusation be able to fly back and hit us in the face. Exactly. So you've got to be really clean. And so Nixon is struggling. I mean, he's, you know, he, he thinks at this one point in time, he might actually end his political career um, if, he, if he's no longer running for the vice presidency. So he goes on national television. He sits in this, what was basically a fake kind of play uh, theater um, that, had a, that looked like a living room in a suburban household. Um, and he sat behind a desk. He had his wife next to him, um, who sat there very kind of, you know, just nodding her head, doing what in 1952 women were expected to do in politics and uh, gives a speech which is utterly emotionally driven and you can tell by just the look on his face that he's you know he's he's been suffering through a, a great deal and basically he then ends he the culmination of the speech is he says you know well some people can try to give me things and they can take them back if if that's necessary but there's one thing I'm going to keep and that's my dog checkers and he ah. thinks, you know this is the oh my god you know yes it was given to me as a gift so you could say it's kind of like you know the the secret fund that I had, but I'm going to like, you know, use it to kind of get the hearts of Americans behind me. It's extremely successful. Nixon's um, ratings go way up. And I think that's where you're starting to see people judging a candidate, not upon the ideas that that candidate is expressing, but simply on the emotional feeling you have and that you bring with you into the voting booth and not certainly not a kind of rational dissection of what these different politicians actually stand for. I was thinking about your question. And I, and I think that one of the first places where I saw this most explicitly was in the Bush versus Gore um, election of 2000. Because the question suddenly became asked, and it, it was really weird because journalists all of a sudden kind of felt that they could ask this question, which was, who would you like to have a beer with, Al Gore or George W. Bush? And I'm thinking to myself, what does that have to do with anything, right? I mean, it, the, it, just because, you're, because you'd like to have a beer with someone doesn't mean that they should be voted into national office. And I think that there's a law, you know, I, I, for me, that this does go back to Nixon's checker speech. I think it's very much still with us today, extraordinarily with us. And I mean, I suppose you could say that the, the, the climax of this is the uh, cult of personality that Donald Trump has built around him. Clearly, this was a candidate who made people feel good, made people feel rat that they were ratifying 
their preconceived beliefs. And it was full of, you know, this sort of emotional appeal, a lot having to do with fear, which we was always touting, you know, fear of, of people who are different from us, fear of people who are coming across the border, all that sort of stuff. And I think that this, I think in some ways, Trump is a culmination of us as a country, whereby we judge our politicians and political leaders by looking through the lens of emotions, rather than through the lens of rationality and rather than through determining who is the better candidate and who will govern the country better than the other one will. I think this is the culmination of that, that we're living through that. Got you. Kevin Matson. we want to thank you so very much. But before you go, I want you to talk to uh, some of the young listeners that may be out there who are considering the potential for engaging in politics at some point in time in the future. Do they have to be quite astute with policy or do they have to be personalities and very likable now? What I hope can be done is is not completely jettison the the emotional side of electoral politics, but on the other hand, not let that substitute for you having you know rational, clear plans for where you want the country to go. Which is, I think, what people running for public office should consider to be their charge: is you know what do you want to do? How do you want to tackle climate change? How do you want to? Well, I mean, today, right? It would be how do you want to tackle Corona stuff? I mean, what do you what what are you going to do? in order to make this thing stop spreading the way it has been. Be able to roll out ideas, but not, you don't have to become, you know, as the term is, is often used, you don't have to become a wonk. You don't have to get buried into technical details. I think you just have to project a vision of where you want the country to go and that that's what you stand for. And at the same time, if you're a likable person, well, that's great. You know, you, 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 you got a double whammy there. You've got both a vision and you've got people who like feel like you're an ordinary person or you're like the sort of person that you wouldn't mind having to spend an afternoon with, um, maybe an hour or two in the afternoon. And certainly not someone who comes across, and this is the biggest challenge I think about a lot of people who are going into running for public office, not come across as fake, um, not come across as someone who's basically not telling you the truth and trying to hide it behind a smile or what have you. That's, I think, the biggest challenge. If we can find those people, I'm voting 100% for them. And of course, intelligence counts. Intelligence counts. Yeah. I mean, maybe I would say it at least seemed to, or it used to, it seems. The comparison and contrastion on intellectualism between Obama and Trump, I've actually written an essay about that. The intelligent, cool, calm Obama versus the frantic, you know, if something happens, you immediately tweet it, although he can't do that anymore. And, you know, you're this sort of impulsive thing that I think Trump had. Very, very different. And in contrast, unfortunately, it seemed to be that a lot of Americans wanted to go with that. Even a lot more Americans, I think, in this recent election than I expected would would have voted for him with, with his track record able to be seen. And that is another point of discussion. We have been perfecting democracy. And I want to thank you, Mr. Matson, Kevin Matson, for being with us today. It was great to be with you. Thank you so very much. This has been Ohio Humanities. We've been talking about the issues and we've been having great conversations because they are real issues and real conversations. Once again, this has been Perfecting Democracy and we just want to thank all the folks with Ohio Humanities for making this happen and making this a reality. I also want to thank my good friend Melvin Barnes, who was instrumental in making this a reality as well and coordinating this to make it the gem that it has become. And finally, I want to thank Pat Williamson, whose vision and belief allowed this project to occur. I want to thank again all of the staff at Ohio Humanities. And again, this has been Perfecting Democracy. My name is Ron Bryant, and I want to thank you all for listening. 
Perfecting Democracy Why It Matters has been made possible by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, which is being administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Ohio Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. To hear additional stories in this series, visit www.ohiohumanities.org.